So uh, we're back in Judges uh, this week and next week. We're doing two chapters tonight and then three chapters uh, next week. And uh, we'll finish up and then uh, get into Easter and things. So, uh, but tonight uh, is really about false religion. You see, that's the title of my sermon. And it uh, really brought to mind a quote from one of my very favorite authors, A.W. Tozer. Uh, and he says this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll say again. Uh, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Uh, many times, uh, if you've been around church or even you've seen preachers on the street corner or preachers on TV, uh, what we usually try to do is persuade the will because our presumption is, uh, especially living in the South, uh, that Christians believe all the right stuff. They're just choosing not to live it out. You guys have heard that language before. And what Tozer would say, and I tend to agree with him, is that we live out exactly what we believe. In other words, if there's a problem with my behavior, the reason is because I have a false theology. But, if I get my theology right, then my behavior should follow. In the book of Judges, especially uh, chapter 17 and 18, that are under our consideration today, I think it's going uh, to bear this out. God's people live out their theology just fine. It's that their theology is bad. Uh, chapter 17 begins a new section in the book of Judges where we've been the last, golly, tons of weeks. Uh, it are in these cycles of these different judges. Judges aren't, uh, aren't leaders in black judicial robes like we might find at the courthouse. Uh, judges are saviors. They're deliverers who save their people from an oppressing, a foreign oppressor. And when we get to chapter 17, all the way in the book through chapter 21, uh, there are no more foreign oppressors. There are no more deliverers. And just because there's not a foreign oppressor doesn't mean that God's people don't have problems. It's just that their biggest problem all rise from within their own community. They are their own worst enemy. Uh, so let's read chapter 17 together. Uh, chapter 18, uh, if, you're, if you're curious, uh, you can look in your Bible. Uh, whether that's a screen or otherwise, and I'll, I'll make this about that. So um, for the sermon, it's just going to be like 50-something verses in the bulletin. And I won't ever read it anyways. So we'll read chapter 17. Uh, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim. whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be the son, be, be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod of household gods and ordained one of his sons, who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man in Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. But the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? 
And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes in your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons, and Micah ordained Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper him, because I have a Levite as a priest. Uh, the word of the Lord. Uh, so you see, uh, the heir thinking, the, the, the heir in their thinking of who God was, and it followed into a false religion. That's what I'm going to call it tonight. Uh, and that's really what these two chapters are really all about. It's about false religion. So here I have three questions. What is false religion? Uh, why is false religion so appealing? And how do we overcome our false religion? Those are the three points. Most of my time today is the first one. What is false religion? Why is it appealing? And how do we overcome it? Uh, what is it? Uh, well, if you go back uh, to the Ten Commandments, you can find Exodus 20. Uh, those Ten Commandments, and really the whole law, are supposed to answer the question, what does it look like to live a life that pleases God? And in those Ten Commandments, the second one has everything to do with what we're going to talk about tonight. The second commandment says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, or serve them. If you hear that, you probably start thinking uh, about Chinese restaurants. You probably start thinking about little Buddha statues. And it does refer to that. It does, uh, it, it, it does say that that's not a good thing. But it also refers uh, to more than physical statues of non-gods. It also refers to creating physical images of God himself for our worship. Now, uh, it'd be easy to sit there and say, all right, I'm off the hook. I have no interest in a statue of Buddha. I don't even have an interest in getting on Amazon and buying some kind of image of the real God. That's great. But there's even more to it than these physical representations. The greatest danger for you and for me tonight isn't a physical representation. It's a mental representation. Our biggest problem is our imagination. See, we engage into what is called to as syncretism. It's a big word. It's the last time I'm going to say it. The syncretism is the merging or the combining or the blending of two or more religious systems to create a new religious system. I'm calling it false religion. It would be like going into the kitchen. You've never been in the kitchen before. You've never made anything before. And you just see before you endless ingredients. And you're told to make a cake. You have no idea how to make a cake. So you just start grabbing ingredients from everywhere, throwing it to a bowl, mixing it up. You put it in the oven, having really no idea what it's going to be when you pull it out. And you pull it out, and you call it cake. But it's probably not cake. It's probably goulash. Well, that's what we do with religion, isn't it? And that's what happens in 17 and 18. They're combining the best of paganism and the best of the worship of the real God and put it together, and they get something all together See, the summary of what happens in 17, what we just read, is that there's a man named Micah, and he constructs a place of worship in his house. So he's got his little worship room. He doesn't have a man cave, he's got a worship room. And in this worship room, he's got a golden breastplate of sorts, that they call it an ephod in our text. He's got these household gods, he's got a carved image, he's got a metal image. 
Well, then he, he doesn't just have the paraphernalia. Now he's got a person who's going to work that room. And that person is a priest. And the priest is going to mediate for him the presence of God and lead him in worship. That's what chapter, that's a summary of chapter 17. Then chapter 18, we haven't read. Uh, it's, you have the same Levite priest, the same one that's mentioned from verse 7 forward in chapter 17. You've got him. And he's approached by five members of the Israelite clan of Dan. The Danites, they've been, they're scouting out for a land to call their own to settle in. And when they stop by to see this Levite priest, they're looking for a divine guarantee. And the divine guarantee, they're wanting to know that for sure God is going to give them a new land. And so the priest gives, gives in to the, the five men. He says, sure, God is going to give it to you. So these five men who've been looking for a land they call their own, they found good land, they've got a divine guarantee, they give it back uh, to the leaders of their people, and they say, hey, listen, we found a great land, and God, God can give it to us. They said, perfect, we're going to suit up in armor, and we're going to destroy those people. Well, they get all their armor on, their 600 people, and go to, go to take over their land, but on the way to go take their new land, uh, they, stop by, they stop by Micah's house, and they see the Levite priest. And when they stop by his house, they kidnap the Levite, they take all of Micah's worship paraphernalia, and they use the Levite priests, and they use the worship paraphernalia, and they set up a new place of worship in the new land that they just conquered. That's what happens in chapter 18. See, both Micah in chapter 17 and the Danites in chapter 18, they take a dash of proper worship of Yahweh, and then they throw in some paganism, they mix it up, and they call it true religion. But what it really is, is false religion. Let me give you a few examples of where you see this is at 17, 18. Um, the narrator uh, never uses the personal name of God. Now, in 17, 18, you'll see a lot of, uh, you'll see a lot of dialogue, a lot of people talking, but there's all, the narrator's also giving us some other details. And in those details, he never uses the proper name of God. This should tip us off. It should tip us off uh, that the characters, they use God's name, but the narrator doesn't. And when the character uses God's name, most of the time they're using it, they're using the personal name of God. God has lots of names in the Old Testament. Uh, the most popular one, it's also the most generic one, is the Hebrew word Elohim. And the word Elohim could, could mention, could, could refer to the real God or could refer to the pagan, pagan's God. So it's generic. But when you see the word LORD in all caps in your Bible, L-O-R-D, all caps, it's referring to the name Yahweh or Jehovah. This is not generic. It's deeply personal. It's so personal that later in the development of Judaism, they can't, the Jews don't even utter the name because it's so holy. So in chapter 17, you can see in verse, in verse 2 and 3, Micah's mother uses the name. Micah uses the name in verse 13. The Levite uses the personal name Yahweh in Chapter 18, verse 6. And this is really significant to reveal their true spiritual state. See, but all of them, Micah, his mother, and the Levite priests, they know something about God. They know to use the right terms. They can give you the best answers, but their actions tell a very different story. Sounds like Christians, doesn't it? They can say things they don't really mean because they've had to have knowledge that's out of sync with their heart. They're making their own religion. They're using the right name, but for bad purposes. Another instance you see it with a Levite priest. 
you read through the Old Testament, you'll see in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that only the sons of Levi are the proper priests. And by the time we get to the book of Judges, they've got access to the book of Deuteronomy. And so the fact that both Micah in Judges 17 and then the Danites in chapter 18, that they desire to have a Levite priest is a very, very good thing. But the bad thing is that neither Micah nor the Danites plan on letting the priest carry out his duties as prescribed by God. The Levite priest was an instrument in their hands, not an instrument in God's hands. False religion. Mixing it all together. You see it in chapter 18, verse 1. Chapter 18, verse 1, the Danites, they want their own land. If we went back to Judges 1, you'd see that the 12 tribes and the 12 clans of Israel, they had all courageously fought the Canaanites. They all had at least partially taken possession of the land that had been given them by God. All the tribes except for Dan. So instead of Dan having the Danites having their own land, uh, verse 34, chapter 1, says that they uh, lived a semi-nomadic lifestyle up in the hill country. So now when you get chapter 18, they're tired of this semi-nomadic lifestyle and they want a land for their own possession. But instead of conquering the land that's been assigned to them in Joshua 19, they feel the freedom to take whatever land they want. It's good for them that they want to get out of the hills and have their own land. That was God's desire for them too. The problem is, is they don't want to submit to the boundaries that have been set out by God. So they just do, as chapter 17, verse 6 says, hold it right in their eyes. See? Mixing it up. One more. They desire, both desire a place to worship. Now, Micah wants a place to worship. God wanted them to have a place to worship too. That's why he gave them the tabernacle. He gave really specific instructions of what was to happen in the tabernacle and what was the tabernacle was supposed to look like. And the tabernacle at this point in the, in the story of Israel, as we find out in chapter 18, verse 31, is that the tabernacle is in Shiloh. That's where they're supposed to worship. You can't just set up a place of worship in your man cave. The Danites just can't collect religious paraphernalia and grab a Levite priest and have their own place of worship in their own land. It's forbidden. So yeah, it's great that they want to have their worship place. It's bad that they don't want to submit to where God says to have it. They're a mixed bag. They've got good theology and proper motivations in some places. In other places, they're not submitting to God's revealed ways. The result? False religion. So are we really any different? I know you probably don't like Buddha statues. I know you probably don't know jack about Levites. It's okay. But we mix God's ways all the time. And we adapt them to our personal liking because we refuse to let God be himself in our lives. We filter out the things about God that our hearts can't accept. How often have you heard someone, or maybe you even said, I don't believe in a God like that. I like to think of God as reminds me of Ricky Bobby, doesn't you? Ricky Bobby sitting around the dinner table and he says, I like the newborn infant baby Jesus. And Calvin Jr. likes his Jesus with a tuxedo t-shirt. But we end up making God into someone we can tolerate. We reject parts that offend our sensibilities and we accept the parts that appeal to our tastes. And we do all of this without making a physical image. So we really are just like Micah. We really are just like the Danites. 
We were shaped God to fit our society, to fit our hearts, instead of letting God reshape our hearts and our society. And what the Danites, and what Micah, and what me and you end up with is an imaginary God. There was a study done about 10 years ago by a sociologist from Notre Dame named Christian Smith, and uh, he conducted this study among uh, the youth, and um, what he comes up with is he compiles all his data, and he summarizes uh, the belief system of youth 10 years ago as moralistic, therapeutic deism. I know there's big words. Moralistic, they want to live the right way. Therapeutic, they want to feel good. And deism, they want to believe in God. And he gives them the five basic core tenets to this moralistic, therapeutic deism. The first one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Sounds good, doesn't it? The second tenet, God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Third, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is indeed needed to resolve a problem. Five, good people go to heaven when they die. You know what's left out there, don't you? Jesus. Sin. Pretty important. But this is modern day false religion. I know we're not pagans, but we're moralistic, therapeutic deists. We take some of the teachings of the Bible, we leave others out, we insert things that America prizes, like the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. We put it all together and we call it Christianity. But the problem is, is that it's not true. Moreover, the problem is that it doesn't work. See, this moralistic therapy of deism, it can't help you if you have cancer. It can't help you if someone you love has cancer and is dying. It can't help you if you've been a victim of abuse. It can't help you explain or deal with systemic evil, or evil, even evil within yourself. It can't help you overcome an addiction. See, Micah was a moralistic therapeutic deist kind of guy. And his false religion came crashing down on him when the Danites stole his religious swag. He had nothing left. His religion didn't work when he didn't have his stuff. And your false religion, my false religion, will come crashing down on us and will show us its ineffectiveness too. And we'll be disappointed, just like we did. That's false religion. But why is it so appealing? If it doesn't work, and it's not true, then why do we do it? Why do we let our imagination run wild? We'll look at Micah the Danites. The purpose of their religious effort is to get access to God so that they can get God to do what they want Him to do. They want God to serve them. See, that's the appeal. The appeal of false religion is to get God on our page, on our agenda, but it reduces God to someone who cannot help or save or bless us because the God of our imagining isn't real. Look at verse 13 on your sheet. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. <laughs> Don't you hear that? He's using God. Here's what Keller, Tim Keller writes about this whole idea of using God. He says, Why is this such a problem? Because it makes it impossible to have a truly personal relationship with God. 
in a personal relationship with a real person, the other one can contradict you and upset you, and then you have to wrestle through it to deeper intimacy. But, when we simply ignore the parts of God we don't like, it means we don't have a God that can ever contradict our deepest desires or say no to us. We end up with a God we're comfortable with who doesn't exist. End quote. So what's hard for you to believe about God? Is it the exclusivity of Christ? That He really is the only way to the Father? Is it hard for you to believe in a hell that God really does have wrath on sin? Is it hard for you to reconcile the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God when it comes to suffering? Is it hard for you to understand how some of God's commandments, how they make sense and why they're important? Maybe it's the Bible's sexual ethic, maybe it's importance of church authority, maybe it's forgiving your enemies. I don't know, I mean, these are all, more or less, they're intellectual questions and they're important. But there can be deeply personal issues that tempt us to imagine a God who doesn't exist, too. Maybe you imagine a God who prefers whites over non-whites because you fear minorities. Maybe you imagine a God who exists to give you the perfect family, or to make you rich, or to make you successful. But Fred, what, what happens when you remain single longer than you expected? What happens if you don't get rich? What happens if you end up in a dead-end job that you don't really like? What should you do? You should wrestle with God is what you should do. Be honest with him, challenging, ask him to reveal himself to you. Ask him to reveal your motivations for imagining a God who doesn't exist. Ask him to subdue you. Pray in the prayer that you see in Mark chapter 9 where it says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I really think uh, the end result will be that you'll have a more personal relationship with God who really does exist. So we've looked at a fault. what is false religion. We look at why it's appealing. Now let's get some hope. That's what we need. Uh, we need to know how to overcome this. How do you overcome this false religion? Well, the only way to overcome false religion is to trade in your imagination of who you think God is for the actual image of God. See, only God can make his own image. He didn't want people trying to make an image of him because his purpose was to show himself to his people in the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God's like, just look at Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1.3 states, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. See, Jesus came, and he came full of grace and truth, and that's going to contradict our own imaginings. If you're more along the traditional culture, and you're a traditional kind of person, then you love truth. You love that Jesus came full of truth. Because you're the kind of person who holds to principles. You hold to morality. You hold to conventional gender roles and family structures. Great. But if you're a more modern person and you are more in line with modern cultures, then you're probably more individualistic and more flexible and more tolerant. You probably love grace. 
Jesus comes along and offends us both. Both the modern and the, tradi and the traditional. Think back to our New Testament story. Or our New Testament reading today. Um, Jesus starts predicting uh, to the crowds what, that he's going to have to suffer and he's going to be killed by the authorities. And Peter overhears some of this and he steps in and he gives Jesus some PR advice. Uh, he says, Jesus, hey, the optics of this isn't going to be good for your brand. Uh, you've got momentum here with these healings. Uh, you've got a fresh voice. These other Jewish voices are so stale. You need to put this suffering stuff behind you. Go, go, go squeeze that down into a corner somewhere. See, for Peter, he couldn't reconcile his idea of who Jesus was with who Jesus actually was. So what does Jesus have to do? He has to tell him the truth. You see how he tells him the truth there in Matthew 16, don't you? He says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your eyes on the things of God, but the things of man. The truth. And Jesus is full of it. And the truth is that Peter's understanding of Jesus is satanic. Strong words. But after this conversation with Peter, things get much worse for Peter. He denies Jesus three times. And in his shame, he abandons Jesus altogether. So Peter abandons Jesus to do what he's always done his whole life. He's a fisherman. So he goes out on a boat and he fishes. And Jesus finds him on his boat. And Jesus restores him to right relationship with him. And then goes even farther. He makes Peter the pivotal leader of the early church. That's grace. Now, if I were Jesus, I would have dusted my feet from this fool and found somebody else. But Jesus can't do that to Peter because he's full of grace. Truth? Satan. Grace? Restores him to right fellowship and empowers him to the early church. See, Jesus became the embodiment of both truth and both grace in his incarnation. And he did it so that he could mediate between you and God. You don't need to build a religious system to get to God. Your reason, your experience aren't going to cut it. They're only going to get in the way because the Christian faith is not one you reason towards. It's not one that you experience first. It's one that's revealed to you in the person of Jesus Christ. See, Micah and the Danites, they rejected God when they thought they were actually worshiping him. They continue to call on God. They continue to go to church. Yet they and we, we cannot control and tame Jesus to remake him into someone we're comfortable with. Because he's going to bust out our categories. And he's going to bust out our categories to save us. And to bless us. Father, forgive us uh, for wanting to make you into our image, really. Uh, the God that the Danites and that Micah, who they imagined, was just really look a lot like them. And Lord, that's what we want to. And Lord, forgive us for that. Lord, I, I pray that uh, you would make us terribly uncomfortable. Lord, we know that you uh, aren't always tame, so would you bust our categories because we want you to bless us. 
we can't go on in this process. So would you do so even in Christ's